Sardis, that's our next church. We're in Revelation 3, by the way. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip those open. You got a phone or a tablet, whatever. You can click open to Revelation chapter 3. But as we're, as we're looking at the church in Sardis specifically, this is the very thing that the church is dealing with. The church is largely like just asleep at the wheel. They have forgotten why it is that they exist. They started kind of getting the nods. Right? When I was 23 years old, and I'm sure this has happened to many of you in here, um, that you're driving home maybe late at night or something like that, and you just kind of start dozing off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct this more at the men than the women, right? Because men are like, well, I could save 30 minutes if I don't pull over and take a nap on the side of the road, right? Like, it would be way better for me just to push through. And so I was about 23, 24 years old, and I was coming home from a Giants game, which I realize right now isn't the best sport for me to bring up. Okay, because the Giants had been eliminated from the playoffs, and last service, the Dodger fans were openly heckling me from the front row. So, Dodger fans, just pipe down. You're not going to win the World Series. Okay, the Braves are. Congrats on being conference champions. Okay, um, anyway, <laughs> so I'm driving home from San Francisco. It's probably 1 o'clock in the morning, right? And I just start, I just start getting the nods really, really bad. And so what do I do? I do what any... Any man in their right mind would do. I opened another soda, drank it as fast as I could. I rolled down the window so cold air was blowing on my face, and I turned up the music really, really loud so I could conquer sleep, right? That was my goal, to conquer sleep. And I hit like Merced, like I said, and I legitimately do not remember the 15 or 20 minutes it took for me to get to Chowchilla. I was legitimately, I don't know if I can actually sleep and drive at the same time. I wish I knew that that, that was true, but I simply do not remember it. I was asleep at the wheel, and I did one of those like, "Ah, where am I things, right, as you wake up in the middle of driving. Um, And then eventually I pulled over, and I took a a nap in a McDonald's parking lot until an employee came out and knocked on my window and asked if I was okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just driving home. Um, But all of us have done that at some point. We've simply fallen asleep at the wheel. And that's the charge that Jesus has here against Sardis. And can I just say that I think this this message, this letter that we have to this church in Sardis is the greatest threat to Western Christianity today. Not the letter itself, but what Jesus is warning them about. It is the greatest threat to Western Christianity today. Churches who are filled with people, but most of them are simply going through the motions of spiritual life and are not actually concerned with their relationship with Jesus. I think we see it all the time. Churches that are filled up on Sundays, they're filled up on Wednesday nights, and they're like, you know what, that's what I'm supposed to do because my mom told me I need to go to church today, or grandma's expecting us to show up, or my dad simply grabbed me by the collar and said, you're going to church. And so we show up to church, and then as we show up to church, we just sit there and we go through the motions, and the the music comes on. And didn't the worship team do a good job this morning, by the way? You thank the worship team. They did a great job this morning. But the music comes on and we're just like, I'll stand up, but I'm not going to be happy about it because I don't want to be a weirdo who sits down, right? And then the pastor comes on and he starts talking and you just kind of zone out and you wonder what time we're going to get out of here to make sure that you can catch the 49ers win at 125, right, for any of you guys who are curious. And then we just kind of go through the motions. We're like, well, I'm here and I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. But largely, we aren't concerned with the spiritual well-being of our life. And this is where Sardis has found itself, simply asleep at the wheel. 
Sardis, to give you a little bit of context, uh, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the world. Okay, Sardis had been the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, okay, and, and in the 6th century BC, it was ruled by this incredibly wealthy king. The king's name was Croesus. Uh, he was so wealthy that there became a saying in Lydia at the time uh, that, that they would just say, oh, you're like Croesus, right? Someone who had uncounted wealth. Like, congrats to you that you have so much money, you can't count that high, right? That's, that's how wealthy this, uh, this king was. And so Sardis was built almost like on this plateau that was about 1,500 feet above the valley floor below. And so most people would assume that Sardis, this, this city where it stood, was impregnable. Like, there is no way that anybody could actually conquer Sardis. And that was actually true for about 600 years or so. Except for two different times, Sardis got taken over. One time it was taken over by the Persians. The other time it was taken over by the Greeks. Know how they did it? Silently, sneakily. They wanted to make sure that Sardis wasn't aware of it. Sardis wasn't alert. And so they sent a band of guys up. They scaled the walls. They scaled this plateau in the middle of the night. They walked into a gate that Sardis wasn't guarding. And because of the fact they were able to do that, they were then able to conquer the city two separate times. This is really, really fitting for the church in Sardis as well. Because in the same way the city was asleep at the wheel as intruders were walking in, the same thing is happening in Sardis. They're simply asleep at the wheel and they don't see the threats that are actively coming. This church, this city, it's actually the least attractive of any of the seven churches whom these letters are written to. So that's always a nice thing to, to write home about. But more concerning than that, Jesus actually finds nothing going well in this church. So as we've walked through this series, every single time we talk about, okay, Jesus, he introduces himself, right? And he introduces himself, he says something about who he is, describes himself. And then after he describes himself, he says something along the lines of, I know your deeds. And then he says something that they're doing really well. He commends them in some way. Okay? And then after he commends them, he said, yeah, you're doing all these things well, but you're really bad at these things. And then after he talks about the things that they're bad at, then he says, okay, this is what you need to do to fix this stuff. He has no commendation for Sardis. There is nothing that he says about Sardis that is currently and actively good. Here's kind of what Jesus says starting in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay. You Revelation nerds, we'll get to that in just a second. There's some symbolism there, and you guys are like, what does that mean? It's really not as uh, mis mystical as you hope it is, okay? Next part, though, it says, I know your deeds. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. And so you're thinking, oh, okay, cool. They got a good, a good reputation there, a reputation of being, being alive. But then he says, but you are dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. We'll get to that in just a second. The, the way that, that Jesus kind of presents himself to each of these churches is a clue as to what the church needs, right? And so last week, as we were talking about the church in Thyatira, he talked about the fact that his eyes were blazing fire, his feet were made of molten bronze. It was this idea that Jesus is, is able to see everything that you're doing and that also he was going to hold fast on the conviction on his word, 
right? So that's, what, that's largely what Thyatira needed to hear. This week, Jesus says something a little bit different. He says he is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, so what we can get from this is the seven spirits, like, like the, the, what the church in Sardis desperately needed was the spirit, life by the spirit. As you think about that number seven and you come to the Bible, the, the number seven always talks about the idea of completion, right? Everything is intact. Everything is together. Seven days in creation, right? All of those different times that seven comes up. So when he's talking about this idea of the seven spirits, he's talking about Jesus came and he is full of the spirit, and so Jesus is obviously Lord of this church. And they have forgotten about the fact that Jesus is Lord of the church. It's not just left up to the members to kind of, the members to, to run the church, to set up its form of government, or to determine the ministry that it's going to do. That is actually the prerogative of Jesus in the same way that it should be today. That for us, our governing board, our pastors, uh, like all of our lay people, our ministry leaders, all of that stuff, we don't want to do things simply to do things. We want to do things because we feel like the Spirit and the Word of God has compelled us to do those things and has told us to go and do those, do those things. Sardis has forgotten that. And these are things that, that they had forsaken and forgotten in Sardis. And so all of these letters, like the life of the church is revealed in its deeds, Right? Jesus, as he does in most of the letters, he says, I know your deeds. He says, I know your works. And in Sardis, these works that were done, these things that were done, they were just done to impress people. They were just done to make, make sure that their reputation stayed intact. Right? They gave this church a name. Like they said, this church had a name. Like it was alive. The church was alive. They had a good reputation, but it was actually on the inside a dead church. The members of it were for the most part not even believers. They weren't spiritually alive at all. They were what we would call nominal Christians or Christians by name only, right? Sarah and I, we got the opportunity to go to London a few years back and we did, you know, all the different tours and all that stuff and we got to go into the, some of these incredible cathedrals. As we're walking through the cathedrals, something, like I just got struck by the fact that like, man, this is gorgeous and from the outside, this looks like, this looks like worship to God with what God has allowed us to create, this beauty, these paintings that are on the inside. But then as you enter into the churches, man, it is nothing but a museum. They are dead inside. There is no spiritual life, no, spiritually act, no spiritual activity actually happening. And so a lot of the people who would attend these places, specifically in Sardis, they were just simply nominal Christians. Jesus actually says, you have, you have a name to live, but you're not alive. You're dead. This indicates a church that's made up of, out, that, that outwardly professes Christ, but probably many of them thought of themselves even as believers, but who actually possessed zero spiritual life. They were Christians in name only. There's a poet who described churches like this in, in these words. He says, outwardly splendid as of old, inwardly lifeless, dead and cold. Her force and fire, all spent and gone, like the dead moon, she still shines on. And those are like haunting words as we consider Western Christianity. As we consider where we are at. As we consider even, even the church in Kings County, the church in California. These are haunting words because I fear that, that, that these are words that could someday encapsulate American Christianity. And I think we're already, already pretty well 
on our way. There's hundreds, thousands of churches like that around the world today. It's what actually gives non-Christians such a negative impression of Christian faith. I actually don't think that, that the Christian faith, like the, the society has any issue with the Christian faith. I think a lot of you probably assume like, oh yeah, society hates Christians, blah, blah, blah. No, they don't. Society has no problem with Christian faith. They have problem with Christians who profess that they are Christians who don't act like Christians. That's the issue that society has with Christian faith. If the church in Western Christianity is acting like Sardis, the culture is going to have an issue with it. They're going to have a problem with it. Because they see the profession of faith. They hear these, these wonderful words, but there's no life in the words. Nothing backs these words up. These churches consist largely of mild-mannered people meeting in mild-mannered ways, striving to be more mild-mannered. There is zero fire. There's zero desire to serve the Lord in any real way. Calvin Miller, he's a theologian. He describes churches like this. He says, many Christians are really Christaholics and not disciples at all. Disciples are cross-bearers. They seek Christ. Christaholics seek happiness. Disciples dare to discipline themselves, and the demands they place on themselves leave them enjoying the happiness of their growth. Christaholics are escapists, looking for a shortcut to nirvana. Like drug addicts, they're trying to bomb out of their depressing world. See, the church, the church at Sardis, Jesus said, is a church that has a reputation but is dead. The church in Sardis is a church of Christaholics. But there was a time apparently when the church was alive, when it was filled with people who knew the Lord. Because they knew him, they served the world in really practical, hands-on ways. That's how they got the reputation in the first place. That's how they won that reputation. They appeared to be a people committed to good works. But now there was no life there. And let me be clear, when I talk about there are people committed to good works, that doesn't mean that your salvation comes from how good you are. Okay, salvation is from grace alone, Christ alone, his blood on the cross alone. But because of the fact that we are saved by grace, we now have the opportunity to serve him in the work that we do. So I just want to make sure that there, we're clear there. But there's no life here. Remember, Paul actually warns us about it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, he says, though I speak in tongues, have the gift of prophecy, and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am a resounding cymbal, or a resounding gong, or a clanging cymbal. Paul says, look, you can have all of these things, but if you don't love your community, if you don't love your neighbor, if you're not loving one another, it's all for naught. You're a clanging cymbal. And everybody knows how much you love a clanging cymbal. And that's what Paul, Paul says here. This was a church that once had this great ministry, but it had slipped away from them. It once had a massive impact on the city of Sardis, but now nothing is happening. Dr. William Barclay, some of you know that name, says this about it. He says, a church is in danger of death. Hear this. A church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own past. A church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own past. What we used to be, how good we used to be, how good the music used to be, how good the last pastor was, how good the missions outreach used to be, how good the kids ministry used to be, how good the staff used to be, how good we used to be in the community. The church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own past, when it's more concerned with forms than with life. When it loves systems more than it loves Jesus, when it's more concerned with material than it is with spiritual things. 
The church in Sardis was so devoid of life that it actually had no struggles going on. No struggles. You look at the rest of these churches, all of these churches had issues going on. And a lot of them weren't issues that they brought on themselves. Right? We talked about other churches where there's this, like, this other group of Jews in the community who are upset at the Christians because at this point, remember, Christianity was like a subsection of the Jews. And they were upset because these Jewish Christians were now proclaiming that Jesus was the Savior. He was raised from the dead. You don't have to listen to the old laws anymore or anything like that. And so the Jews were upset because they were so loud and so verbose about what it is that they believed. That they had issues with those Jews. Or last week, we talked about Thyatira. Man, Thyatira, she's a false teacher. She's a prophetess who makes her way into the, into the church. And she's teaching a fa- false gospel in there. Guess what? There were people who were there actively learning, wanting to know more about Jesus. So there was an issue there from the outside. Sardis, man, Sardis is the least of these because of the fact that no one even cares that they exist. They're asleep at the wheel. So what is it then that a dead church needs? Let's look at verse 2. Wake up. I love that. Jesus says, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So what are the needs of the church? First need of the church that is dead or dying is to awaken to its condition, to understand what it is that the church is actually walking through. These words in Greek, they're, they're called staccato commands. Staccato commands, uh, it's essentially like a slap in the face. That's where you get that exclamation mark from where it says wake up. That's the staccato command. Like, wake up, sharp words, slap in the face. They're designed to kind of to stimulate, to wake up. And in the letter to Ephesians, Paul actually says this. He says, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. He's talking to the believer here. Wake up, O sleeper. You are asleep at the wheel. So what was, like, what was the need of the church in Sardis? Wake up. Honestly, face your failure. Recognize what it is that you've done wrong. Feel the dullness of your services. Smell the deadness of your life. Ask yourself, what has gone wrong? Why are our services so dreary, so dull, so unattractive? Why don't people want to come? Like a church in this state needs to ask itself some very serious and very sobering, honest questions. Wake up, says Jesus. Wake up to what it is that you've done wrong. So that's the first thing, wake up. Second thing is strengthen what remains. Jesus says that there in verse 2. Strengthen what remains. So what, what, what's that? Jesus has already told them what there is of value in the church. He knows your works, he said. And they were good works in a way. Okay, but these works were also very incomplete, right? Because Jesus says, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the my, in the sight of my God. So he's saying, look, wake up. Continue to do the things that you are supposed to do because your work is not done. Let me put into contemporary terms for us, okay? FBH, wake up. Your work in Kings County is not done. Your work in your neighborhood is not done. Your work at your job is not done. Your work in your family is not done. 
wake up, continue to pursue that work. Because their works were incomplete. Their works were unfinished. The actions were right, but the motives for doing them were wrong. They weren't doing these things for the right reason, right? As you read this, you can see here there's a church that's busy doing good things. Their reputation still stands. But doing them to impress people is the wrong reason to do those things. They were trying to display and enhance a reputation that they already had. But their motives were all jacked up. They were concerned as to whether people around would see them, right, and know that they were doing these things. It's like saying we do the fall carnival every year at the end of October just so the community knows that we do things here. That's empty. We do the fall carnival at the end of the year so we can invite people to come to church. So we know that, so people will know that we love our community and we care about them. We want to provide a safe space for them and their kids to be able to come get irresponsible amounts of candy. That's why we do the fall carnival. So we can say, hey, look, this is who we are. This is what we're about. We really hope you join us on Sunday. We want to tell you a lot about this guy named Jesus. It's not just so the community can be like, oh, yeah, there's a spot we can go. And there's people like that, and that's fine. They're going to come through. But that doesn't mean that, that our motives change in the midst of that, right? All throughout Scripture, we're told that God, God judges not just the things that we do, but the reason we do them. Right? God reads our hearts. He's judging whether our work is done out of love for him and gratitude for what he has done for us and not caring whether people see them or not, not caring what we are praised for or not. That we are doing them, that they are done because we want to please him. And so what this church needed to capture again was, was the meaning of the words, I'm doing this for the sake of the Lord. I'm doing this for the Lord's sake. I'm doing this as unto him. As more traditional churchgoers would say, the church, man, they needed to recover this hope of the Lord's return. If you do not wake up, Jesus says, he says, I'm going I'm to come like a thief and you'll not know what time I'm going to come to you. The return of Jesus is the greatest hope that the church has been waiting for since the very beginning of the church is for Jesus to come back. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. John talks about it. The hope of the return of Christ. And man, can I tell you, there are a lot of days where I wake up and I'm just like, Jesus, it would be real cool if you just came back today. Right? We've all been there. You all think it at times like, Jesus, today's the right day. Okay? It's Monday morning and I really don't want to be at work. Come back. Come back right, right now. But here is a church that has even lost that expectation of Jesus coming. Right? And so that aspect of, of, of Jesus coming they particularly needed was not like visible appearing in glory to kind of establish his kingdom that it talks about in the first chapter of Revelation, but rather the aspect of his second coming that Jesus describes in Matthew 24, 23, where he says he will come suddenly and he's going to come without warning like a thief comes to steal away the treasure of a home. This church has lost all expectation. The church is spiritually dead. But Jesus, just like in all other churches, he gives a charge to them in verse 4. And this is what it says. It says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. It's a great line. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. 
I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Verse 6, he ends the letter like he ends every other letter. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so let's go back up to verse 4 there. White garments. Okay, white garments are always in Scripture a symbol of redemption. Okay, all the time. That's why in, in more traditional churches, you see as people get baptized, what are they wearing? White robes, right? It's a sign and it's a symbol of redemption. Not a requirement, but a symbol reminding people that they are, they are dead to their sins. They are alive in Christ. They have been redeemed. They've been purified by the blood of Christ, right? Actually, in the seventh chapter uh, in, in the book of Revelation, it, it talks about a great multitude of people who have come, to, to come out of the great tribulation that happens in, in Revelation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7.14. Clearly, white garments are a sign of being redeemed, being saved by the grace of God. And again, it's the only way that we can get saved is by the grace of God. Isaiah 118 actually says it, and I really like the way that uh, the King James Version Bible says it for you KJV people out there. I'm throwing you a bone this morning. This is what it says. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins will be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they may be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's what the blood of the lamb, that is what the blood of of Jesus on the cross can do. That Jesus here says that these people are, are worthy, but they aren't worthy because they've lived good moral lives. Most of them probably, probably haven't. They are considered worthy because their sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ on the cross. That's the only reason. They are worthy because God called them worthy once they believed in their hearts and confessed with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what Romans 10.9 says. That's the gift we all get when we come to faith in Christ, when we acknowledge Jesus as Lord of our lives. And can I just say that, that, that oftentimes we forget how precious and how important that gift actually is. Not just to your own eternal standing, not just to, to our desire to wait for Jesus to come back, but, but because of the fact that Jesus is the hope of the world, each of us understands, hopefully most of us understand anyway, the gospel, the good news of the gospel. You, you have that. For a lot of you, it might be in your hand right now, the Bible sitting in your hand. Maybe it's an app open if you're, again, not checking sports scores or anything like that. Maybe that, like may, maybe, but, but we, we have that and we just kind of keep it, keep it to ourselves, Right? We live in a world that is actively searching, that is lost and is broken, and all of us in this room should be able to express the gospel in our lives and in our, wor wor in our words to be able to give hope to a world that is completely devoid of it. I hate watching the news. Anybody agree with that? I hate watching the news. Yeah, so that's the loudest you've been all day. I hate watching the news. I cringe when I open Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. Um, because I know that I'm going to hear about or read about something else terrible that has happened in the world. And I get into almost this mode of like despair rather than hope because I just think to myself, how much worse can this get? 
How much worse can the world get? And we go to despair oftentimes because we forget that Jesus literally died for you. That Jesus is literally the hope. Like he died for your sins, the sins you committed yesterday, the sins that you committed today, the sins you're going to commit in the future. Our only hope is in Jesus and the church is asleep. Walking with Jesus in white, eternal life in God's presence, sharing in Jesus' honor, these are the rewards for the faithful. But FBH, Western Church, we're asleep. So how then can we stay faithful? The question is, how then can we guard ourselves from becoming a facade, from becoming a church in name only? We have to realize that this letter actually circulated not just to Sardis, but these letters circulated to all seven of the churches together. And so all of the churches have to listen to what the Spirit was telling one church. And we can't think of ourselves too highly as we hear this, that, oh, this is just written to Sardis, or this is for that church down the road, or this is for that one church who waves flags outside of it, or whatever it may be. Because as we sit here and oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, oh, our, our church isn't dead. Look at all of the things that we're doing. What's your motive for the things? Are you asleep at the wheel? Because we need to read these things and understand these things with humility. It is too easy to become Christian in name only. And it happens for a lot of different reasons. Perhaps a church begins to embrace religious pluralism right? Any God is fine. We can accept any God. So they no longer uphold the exclusiveness of, of Jesus and his claims or maybe other desires to kind of fit in with the culture. They feel like they're going to somehow look irrelevant or heaven forbid someone calls them a bigot. And so because of that, they're just like, yeah, I'm just going to shy away. So they kind of water down the message a little bit. For other churches, maybe it's materialism, distracts from total obedience. People oftentimes began loving their possessions more than Christ's kingdom. But other churches, they preach what, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring, uh, without requiring repentance. It's grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus. It's your get-out-of-jail-free card. One of my least favorite experiences that I ever had when I was doing some uh, 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 missions exposure trip, I was uh, in St. Louis, and we were working with these kids all week. We were playing basketball in the summertime for like eight hours a day. I was trying to relive my glory days, and I still got showed up, right? And we're out there. And we're trying to have these good conversations with kids about faith, about Jesus, provide them a place to go. And all of a sudden, this big van rolls up. It was Meals on Wheels, right? You guys remember Meals on Wheels? It's probably still functioning somewhere. And Meals on Wheels rolls up, and everybody, of course, gets excited because they're like, free food, let's go, get, let's go get lunch, right? So all the kids, they crowd around this big van, and then all of a sudden, the door opens. Like, we're talking like taco truck, big van, you know what I mean? This door opens. And there's big old guy in a bright purple suit comes out. And I was like, that's a bold choice right there. And so he comes out and he, he stands, he gets onto the bottom step of this, this van, this truck. And all the kids are around and he just says, he says, all right, I want you to raise your hand if you want to go to heaven, right? 
And of course, all the kids raise their hand because you've got to be dumb to answer no to that question, right? I think I even raised my hand. I was like, I want to go to heaven. You can tell me how to go to heaven. Um, and so all the kids raise their hand, and he's like, sweet. Well, if you want to go to heaven, this is all you have to do. Just repeat after me. And you say, Jesus, I want you to come live in my heart. And, of course, they all say, Jesus, I want you to come and live in my heart. Jesus, I want to live with you for eternity. Jesus, I want to live with you for eternity. Amen. You're just like, that's not the gospel. That's a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's no repentance in that. Because as we talk about the idea of repentance, repentance isn't just saying sorry. Repentance is literally turning and walking the other direction. We had a great conversation about this on, in my, uh, my Wednesday night group that I was in. That if we repent, we can't just say, hey, Jesus, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to live with you for eternity, and I'm going to continue to live my life the way I want to live my life. Repentance is recognizing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you are literally a dead man walking and saying, Jesus, I apologize for my sins. I acknowledge you as Lord of my life, and I'm going to choose to follow you every single day. So because of that, I'm going to stop living for myself. I'm going to turn, and I'm going to start living for you. The Western church has forgotten that. Cheap grace. The world is on fire and the church is asleep at the, at, at the wheel. Churchgoers can wear the name Christian because it oftentimes best aligns with their moral or political positions, not necessarily because they love Jesus. A church can also have all the right answers but lack the spirit's regenerating work, right? Nominal Christianity wears a lot of faces and that happens for a variety of different reasons. But in the face of this culture, how should we respond to that, that, that Jesus doesn't say to us, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. For starters, make sure that your own faith is genuine, that you personally aren't just putting up a facade, that you're not here just going through the motions because it's what you're supposed to do. Can I just say that that one of my fears for FBH, one of my fears not just for us, but for the church in California, the church in the United States of America, that we are attractive in name, but dead in our actions. And we as a church need to repent. We as individuals need to repent. So as I was looking at what the church was this week as I was working through it and realizing that, that we got communion as well this week. And I was trying to figure out how do these two, like why is it that we do communion on a regular basis? Why do we do it every single month? Because Jesus said, as often as you do it, remember me. He didn't say every single time that you eat a meal, take communion. As often as you do it, remember me. So why do we do it once a month? I think we do it once a month to ensure that we have an opportunity to remember what Christ did on the cross and beyond that, to have a built-in opportunity to repent of our sins on a monthly, ongoing basis so we don't fall asleep at the wheel. So we're going to transition to that now, but I don't want you to pack up. Okay, so I'm going to invite the band to come out. Band, as you come out, if you didn't receive communion elements, you can raise your hand. We'll have some members of the diaconate come around. They'll take, they'll take care of you. But I want you to stay with me because there's three, there's three groups of people in this room right now. 
You may not know it as you walked in, there's three groups of people in this room right now. Maybe you're in the first group, and man, you are wide awake at the wheel. You're killing it. You got it on cruise control. You're going 80 miles an hour down 99 telling other people to get out of the way because you are so on fire for Jesus right now that your life is reflecting Jesus, your words are reflecting Jesus. Any person that you see, man, they're coming into the kingdom of God, and you're absolutely killing it right now. If you are in that group of people, take this opportunity as we have communion, get filled up, commune with God, say thank you God for, for sending your son to die on a cross for me and get back out there and keep crushing it for the kingdom. Thank you. But I think there's two other groups in here. I think there's another group in here that, that maybe you haven't even gotten into the car yet. You're not even behind the wheel yet. You haven't even started down this relationship with Jesus at all. And so like hearing about the gospel and cheap grace and who's Dietrich Bonhoeffer and all these other things is all foreign to you. But maybe you heard this morning and the spirit is working inside of you this morning in such a way that you're just like, you know what? This is my opportunity. I want to live for something bigger than myself. I wanna be a part of the kingdom of God because the life that I, that I have been living, this kingdom that I've been trying to build on my own, like this little kingdom to myself, and every single time I end up face down in a pit. And I wanna honor God with my life. And so maybe that's you, and maybe you wanna make that commitment for the first time this morning, I'm gonna ask you to hold on to that for just a second. And I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that. But I need to talk to the largest group in here. The group of us who have been Christians for a really, really long time. I've been a Christian now for, for 30 years. I know that shocks some of you because you're like, man, you became a Christian when you were negative five? And I'm like, yeah, I did. But I've been a Christian for 30 years and I can tell you, like my job even as a pastor, right? My job is to like honor Jesus every single day in my work, in my life. And there's days where I wake up and I'm like, I don't like, I, Jesus, today's just not the day. And I'm asleep at the wheel. And sometimes it's on purpose and other times it's not on purpose. But I can tell you what, there's lots of times I go through a grocery store line and the person ringing up my groceries is like, so what do you do for work? And I'm just like, I need to say anything but pastor right now. Because if I say pastor right now, there's gonna be strings attached. And when there's strings attached, I'm gonna to need to talk to him about Jesus and I'm just too tired to do that right now. And I'm holding the hope of the, of the world and I am asleep at the wheel. And I know you guys aren't pastors, but I also know that many of you already have a relationship with Jesus, a relationship that you hold onto dearly. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here this morning. And so if you're asleep at the wheel, in the same way that oftentimes I fall asleep at the wheel. This morning, I just wanna give you an opportunity to repent of that. To say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I've been taking your word a little bit too casually. Help me repent, help me walk back this way towards the people, towards you specifically. And as I see the other people in my life who are devoid of hope, who don't know who you are, who don't know your name, that I would just do my best to express the gospel to them in such a way that they would be able to understand it that I would be able to, to say, hey, this is what my life was before I met Jesus. That I was just like you, I was lost, I had no hope, I was living for myself, or substitute, whatever it was. And then I had an encounter with the living God that, that there was a pastor one day who said, this is the gospel 
that Jesus went and died for your sins. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for your sins. And now I get an opportunity to not only live for him now, but live for him for all of eternity. And I think that's the group in here that largely as we receive communion this morning, as we receive these elements this morning, that we need to repent of that and wake up. Wake up, oh sleeper. That's how Paul said it. So this is how this whole thing is going to go down, okay? I'm going to pray in just a second. At FBH, we believe in what's called an open table, meaning you don't have to be a member of our church in order to partake in communion with us, but we would ask that you have come to a saving faith in Jesus meaning you need to both admit that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So I'll give you a chance to do that. So we're gonna pray that, we call them the ABCs. And then after we pray the ABCs, the band is gonna play a little bit. And in that time, man, if you're crushing it, get filled up, commune with God. God, thank you, thank you for your son. Take the elements and we'll get out of here. If, if, if you're, you're new to faith, for the first time this morning, man, receive the elements, be thankful, thank Jesus for what he did on the cross for you and ask him to help you figure out how to get on mission. And if you're in the last group, like I so often am, repent. God, I'm sorry. Allow your spirit to work in me in such a way that I, I can't even help, but every person I encounter, I would be able to express the gospel in some way to them. And then once we, once we uh, are done singing, we'll receive communion together. We'll have the end of that song. We'll pray and we'll get out of here. But let's start by praying the ABCs. Why don't you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you even for the church in Sardis, an example for us not to follow. But God, I pray we would heed their warning that it wouldn't simply just be us going through the motions on a regular basis. That we would allow the spirit to work in our lives in such a way that we would be able to express the gospel to other people. This free grace that you have allowed us to have because of the fact you sent your son to die on the cross. And so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you are new to faith this morning and you, you just want to make a profession of faith, you wanna say yes to Jesus for the first time, Simply pray after me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I repent of my sin. But B, I believe you sent your Son to die on a cross for me. To take my place. And C, that I would choose to follow him every single day of my life. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.